the word of God from Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. Would you remain standing um, as we commend this time and ask for the Spirit to help us to understand the psalm and to apply it to our lives? And... Um, this is going to be one of those mornings where you really want to keep your Bibles open or the text open because we're going to be really interfacing it with it quite a bit. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for just the right words that our heart needs. We confess that our hearts are distracted and stubborn and doubting. And these are spiritual words that are not easily understood apart from your spirit. And so, Lord, we beg you humbly that by your spirit you would illumine these sacred words, that we would understand them, apply them to our hearts, and fall deeper in love with the Savior. May your spirit help that to be true in our hearts this morning, for we pray to the glory of Jesus our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Ronnie. If you're new, we're so glad that you're, you're here. And we, um, we're beginning a summer in the Psalms. And so we're going to begin in Psalm 4. So just recently, out of nowhere, uh, my youngest daughter signed me up for a half marathon. Thank you for that. Not too excited about this. I don't run much. And quite honestly, I'm not actually sure that I can complete the race. So um, I got on the internet looking for some tips, and I came across this article that I can't get over. Uh, have you guys ever heard of an ultra marathon? Yeah, you put the word ultra in front of marathon, and all of a sudden, like, what's happening? So it's this running event that is significantly longer than the standard 26 miles, and I'm not sure why, but these are growing and increasing in their popularity. Uh, but there's one that one race that's quite uh, infamous. There's this guy. His name's Gary Cantrell. He started a race called the Barkley Marathons, and it's truly unlike uh, other races. There are uh, all kinds of like documentaries and articles about it. You can just get on YouTube and uh, Google it. I mean, it's wild. It's nuts. Uh, this particular race is about a hundred miles long. Uh, it, it takes about five loops to complete. Um, the race only has about 40 runners, 
And over its history, very few people have actually finished it. And it's a challenging course for a lot of reasons. For instance, um, over the course of these five loops, the vertical gain is equivalent to ascending Mount Everest twice. Uh, but there's other things as well. So Gary Cantrell does not tell the racers exactly when the race starts. They just have to come roughly around. So at any moment between like midnight and noon, uh, you just have to be ready. And he's going to sound a horn through a conch shell. Like who does that? And, um, and then instead of like shooting a gun to start the race, he lights a cigarette. That's when you know the, the race has started. And then when you start, you immediately realize that the course itself is not marked. The runners don't know exactly where they're going. And what he does is he places books along the route of the, the loop. And you, once you find the book, you have to rip out the page that corresponds to the number on your bib. And that shows evidence that you've completed that loop. And... Um, there's like this one documentary, you guys, it came out, I think, in 2014. It's subtitled, The Race That Eats Its Young. Like, what? And uh, this race is unbelievable, and it's ridiculous. And the hardest part is not simply that you're running 100 miles, as if that's not bad enough. It's actually the distress of not knowing where you're going through a very difficult terrain like when runners are exhausted they become completely distressed and in that darkest moment they feel like there's no way out that they're trapped i begin this way because what psalm 4 is doing is it's giving the people of god a road map precisely when they are stressed out when they are in distress and this psalm really knows what it means to be stressed out, to be anxious, to be overwhelmed, that feeling of being trapped. The commentators um, will tell you that Psalm 4, uh, that would be used and recited at nighttime. So you probably heard, right, that the psalms are the ancient songbook of Israel. Have you heard that before? It's like Israel's playlist. And uh, these songs would have ordered the days of the people of God. They, they were there to be sung in the morning, sung in the afternoon, and then even sung at night. So this one is an evening psalm. And, and, and an evening psalm is that moment, right, when your imagination begins to run wild and you can't get out of those anxious loops. I mean, your body is like completely exhausted, but your mind can't stop racing and it's so bad that your heart starts being like you drank too much coffee. You know what I'm talking about. You feel so trapped and you're lost in the mountains that your mind has made really out of molehills. And you need a way out. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm glad to tell you that we have Psalm 4 as this road map to falling asleep and resting in God. As many of you guys know, there's lots of different kinds of psalms. What we have in Psalm 4 is really a merger of two different kinds of genres. The psalm, the, the psalm 4 is going to begin as a psalm of lament, but then it's going to finish as a psalm of confidence. 
And so that's actually going to make up the two points this morning as I make a few observations about how Psalm 4 serves as a roadmap for rest and sanity in our inner lives through first lament and then confidence. So let's begin by looking at some features as we evaluate this as a psalm of lament. As many of you know, Amanda and I have one boy and three girls, and these kids are the love of our lives. My oldest is about to go off to college, and I am incredibly sad, but I'm also incredibly uh, intimidated because he's kind of like a co-parent. We're really thankful for that. Uh, My son plays this important role in our family in an otherwise decidedly feminine home, so he's like my partner in crime. Uh, Having three girls born in all the same year has been quite a learning experience for me particularly, and I'm not even just talking about the high school years because those have been wild, Um, but my learning has begun since they were a very young age. Uh, Amanda, being overwhelmed obviously, would ask me to help brush their hair or put their hair in braids or a ponytail, and, um, and I want to help, but it turns out that there are so many different tools for a little girl's hair. Uh, clips, bows, hair ties, bobby pins, scrunchies, ponytail holders, and headbands. Now, it's important to understand, everyone, guys, listen up, those words are not to be used interchangeably. As I'm trying to help Amanda do my girl's hair, I'll say something like, "Uh, can you pass the clip? And they'll say, Daddy, I think you mean bobby pin. Yeah, right. Or I'll say, hey, can you pass the ponytail holder? Daddy, that's a scrunchie. Now, most of the time, I am clueless as to what I am trying to say, but my daughters understand. They know what I'm getting at, and they give me just the right word in the right moment. In the first part of the psalm, it begins as a lament, right? It's in the depth of despair and distress. And if you've ever felt that, those are not the moments where words come easily, right? But Psalm 4 gives us the words. They know what we're getting at. They give us the words to speak to God. And in those confusing and tumultuous moments... When it feels like the best we can do is just kind of mumble words, Psalm 4 says, hey, here, this is what you're trying to say. Here are words. It gives us sacred and important words to say to process our hearts in the middle of paralyzing distress and anxiety. And these words are surprising in three ways. You're going to find, as we look at them, that they're honest They are spoken, and they are mindful. Let me show you what I mean. First, the psalmist is honest. Look at verse 2, for instance. There's this refrain that is repeated twice. How long, right? How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So what David, uh, the the psalmist, is doing here is he's he's surveying his present circumstances. And apparently there are people in his life who distort the truth in a way that is a massive detriment to him personally. So think like deep and painful conflict. And, and this external distress is turning, in in, is turning into internal distress. And David like knows that God can do something about it, right? 
And yet, even though God can do something about it, these, these behaviors, these circumstances persist. And so David says, how long will this go on? Now, this rhetorical question speaks to the behavior of these people, right? But it's a psalm, and so he's really speaking them to God, isn't he? Right? Like, God is the main audience. Like, God, are you going to do something about this? Like, if you are there, why don't you ask? How long? So these words are for God, and they are brutally honest. There's a kind of, there's a kind of honest doubt either to God's, that, that's doubting either God's willingness to act or doubting his timeline and wisdom, right? But either way, David needs to say these words to God. Otherwise, there will be a kind of dishonesty in their relationship. Can you see that? Now then, not only is in this lament, not only is it honest, but it is spoken. It is spoken. I know that sounds a little bit obvious, but hear me out on this. So in verse 1, the psalmist begins by saying, look there, answer me when I call. And then in the second part of verse 3, he says, the Lord hears when I call to him. So when we are lamenting the deep inner distress of our lives, it is really important that we vocalize it. Like speaking it is actually part of the healing. You know, far too often we bottle up our emotions uh, inwardly because we kind of feel silly of saying them. Like, God should just be able to read my, read my mind. And he, and he can, but, we, but they're missing the point. We, it's the silliness. We don't want to take that extra step of saying it. But keeping it inside is like playing with a beach ball right at the pool. And you can pull that ball underwater for a little bit, but eventually it's going to pop up, right? And the deeper that you pull that ball down under the water, the more violently it's going to come out. See, part of the restlessness in our spirit, like when our minds are like spinning and spinning, is because our bodies are looking for ways to express this anxiety, and we're giving it no healthy outlet. There is an important relationship between our spirit and our bodies. In some strange way, by actually speaking it, writing it, vocalizing it, by giving it expression, our bodies can release the anxiety. Stress is worn in our bodies because God made us like a, a physical, spiritual nexus. And this is how we let it go. And so this roadmap requires honesty. It requires this vocalization. But in Psalm 4, we're seeing one more thing in the lament section. We're seeing that our lament requires mindfulness. It requires memory. And I know that word mindfulness is kind of a trendy word. Let me see if I can't help us understand biblically what it would look like. So, so often in our distress... Because we're in distress, we're losing our grip on what's real. On, we're losing our grip on reality. Uh, our brains are playing um, this overtime. They're working overtime, spinning, creating a false reality. 
a false universe. And if you just stay there, you will become trapped in your stress with no way out. But the psalmist here is mindful. And mindfulness is a memory bridge. Think of it as a memory bridge to reality. It's touching back into reality by remembering. And we see him remember two things. First, he remembers God's past actions. Look at verse 1 again. David remembers that God has, he says, given me relief when I was in distress. So notice that that is in the past tense, right? And think, I mean, like, think about what this could look like for you as you're lying in bed and your mind is in that loop. Lord, tonight I lie awake sleepless but I remember, this is not my first time for this to ever happen to me. And you've given me, Lord, rest before. You've shown me how the things in my life, which feel so definitive, that feel so consequential, that they're not what they look like. And Lord, nothing is unresolvable for you. Lord, give me rest once again. You have given me rest. You have given me relief in my distress. When you're feeling the anxiety, it's easy to think that it is indefinite, right? You think that that thing that's, that has captured your imagination will never go away. And so you have to remember past instances in which God gave you resolution and rest so that it will ultimately rekindle hope that he can do it again. And this mindfulness is so important, but not only as a memory bridge to past faithfulness of God, but also to remember who you are to God. Look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So what, what that means is that David remembers who he is, right? That he belongs to the Lord, that he has been set apart, and he's mindful of this distinct identity, Right, just like a child receives a unique blessing of favor from his or her parent, so it is with the fatherhood of God. And this memory bridge is our way of believing that though my feelings in this situation are telling a different story, I'm going to remember who I am in the Lord. So much of our stress comes because of our circumstances, or, or, but, or are the hurtful things that people say that are kind of hanging over us. And those things make us forget our primary identity, right? So if you see, if we see ourselves primarily as like a provider for like a middle-class lifestyle, then a deal gone bad will totally undo us. If we, if, if our, if we see ourselves primarily as a parent, then a rebellious child can totally undo us. If we see ourselves primarily as an employer or an employee, then subpar performance can totally undo us. If we see ourselves as our own God, actually alone in this universe, then sickness or the sickness of a loved one or something that we can't control will totally undo us. 
And I'm not saying that we should be unaffected by those things, but what I am saying is that being mindful of, be- of, uh, of belonging to God, of his past actions, can literally be the difference between a sleepless night or rest. So what I want to pivot here now. So what we said is that the psalm is both a psalm of lament and a psalm of confidence. Our lamenting is honest, there is spoken, and it, and it is mindful. But what about the confidence part? So let's move now to the second part of this psalm. So John Milton, you guys go back to high school with me for a second. In his epic poem, Paradise Lost, he writes this haunting line. He says, he writes, The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. All right, let me say that again. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. The map of relief from our, from our anxiety and distress runs through those things that saturate our imagination, that saturate our inner lives. Hellish realities or rest of heaven coursing through our imagination is what's at stake here. This shift from the sanctified complaint of lament to confidence is so important. Now listen carefully, because our lament to God is in vain if it does not ultimately lead us into a new confidence. And this is why this next section is so important. There are three features I want to bring to your attention as we just look at the text. Three words, trust, joy, and rest. First, let's look at trust. So throughout this psalm, in the midst of his distress, it's as if the psalmist, the singer, opens up his hands and he's entrusting himself and entrusting the situation to the Lord. Now, why do I say that? Look at verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. He's saying, like, be honest about your anger. Plead with God, of course. And then be silent. <laughs> and then be silent. Isn't that interesting? Like, don't Try to take control of the situation. Don't obsess about the thing. Rather, silently trust the Lord. Verse 5 makes it even more explicit. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. That's like saying, I don't like the situation. It needs remediation, right? It needs sacrifices, but I trust you. I don't understand all that is happening in my heart and in my life right now, but I'm going to trust that you, God, are working for my good. Church, (laughs) being certain of what I'm saying to you is so important in the Christian life. And I'm not asking you to be naive or to be blindly optimistic, but I am begging you to believe I am begging you to believe, especially in the saddest moments of your life, that God is a big God. I'm sure that many of you have observed, if you live at least in this northeast side of town, that Park Hill, they're doing a lot of work, right? 
the lead pipes and the poor streets uh, really needed a lot of attention. And on the whole, this is a really great and an important thing that's happening in Park Hill. Now, I didn't realize that they were going to be replacing all the tubes on certain streets and entire sections uh, that were completely shut down. I was late trying to get somewhere one day, and I hit the construction. And it was like so stinking frustrating. I, I honestly, I thought, why would anyone choose to do this work on this road at this hour? I mean, it's crazy. It's maddening. But now that it's done, at least that section, and now that it's repaved, it's incredible. And so many people are thankful. These are far better conditions than they were before, even though it felt maddening at the times, at times. The singer is saying, I don't like this maddening situation, but I trust you. You're doing something. You see? If we don't get to this place of trust and surrender, the stakes are high. You will start blaming God, thinking that he gets everything wrong and that we know better. That's what's at stake. Now, it's important to notice that the psalmist makes no mention that his trust will change the actual situation or the circumstances. This distressing situation may absolutely and very likely continue to persist. So what has God promised to us if not change circumstances? The second word, he promises joy. And this is the second feature of this psalm of confidence. Verse 6, look there. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The rest that we seek does not come from our circumstances. It is the light of God's face upon us. It's his favor. Verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. There is more joy in God's presence than even in our delight and even in our abundant circumstances. This is a deeper joy than any material prosperity can offer. Like kids, like listen to me because I am convinced that nothing in your world tells you this and promises you the exact opposite. There is a deeper joy in the Lord than any material prosperity you can get. I'm begging you to believe that, kids. And adults, you know that what I'm saying is true, but you don't live like it. There is this invisible and internal joy that is better than having more stuff or even comfort. There is no commensurate relationship between more joy and an easier life. There is no commensurate relationship between those two things. You only need to go to developing world to know that what I'm telling you is absolutely true. Life actually tends to get more difficult, even with God. And yet there's something deeper at work. Tim Keller, in one of many of his masterful books, but this one is on his book on suffering, he says this. He says, Christianity distinguishes itself 
by how it deals with suffering as opposed to how other systems do. He says, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. Contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it, he says, and faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. That is the unlikely and surprising joy that can erupt in your soul, even in anxious and distressing times. God is at work in your anxiety, and if you will allow him, he will give you a joy that transcends even your circumstances. So the psalm of confidence has these important features. First, we saw trust and joy, but there's one more, and it's rest. Verse 8, in peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So like when you're on your bed and your mind is in that vicious loop, right? It's spinning and spinning. I, as your pastor, I want you to be able to sleep. I do. I want you to be able to fall asleep. But I want more than that for you, right? A sleeping pill or a stiff drink can get you to sleep. But what is promised here is not only sleep, but soul rest, When the psalmist says that the Lord makes me to dwell in safety, he's not just saying that we won't die. Listen, modern people, when they hear that word safety, they think almost exclusively in terms of safety from harm, right? Like ancient people did not think like that. They were well acquainted with death. Most of their children did not survive adolescence. Mothers would die simply because they became pregnant with a child who would be in the breach position. These people understood death. Their worlds were often turned upside down by things that you and I think are really, we don't even notice when there's a famine. And their worlds would be turned upside down and their children would die. When the psalmist talks about safety, he's not talking about simply being safe from harm. He's talking about being kept by God. Denver Prez, you are kept by God. Your children are kept by God. Your loved ones are kept by God. Our last breath may be snuffed out in this life by sickness or tragedy, but you are kept by God. This life is just a blip of the eternal reality and enjoyment that we will have with the triune God. And this is one of the most difficult things for us to believe because in this world, in this life, this existence is all we know so far. And our deepest dreams and our deepest aspirations have nothing to do with eternal life with God and has everything to do with our grades or our salary or our afternoons, or our vacations, or the fever that our kid has. 
But when we remember that our confidence is not in anything in the creation, but in the creator, then things begin to change. And I need you to drill this into your life. Drill this into your prayer life. Drill this into the way that you speak to your children so they start catching it. Drill this deep into your soul so that it becomes a fundamental lens by which you understand your life in this world. That's what we're talking about when we talk about confidence in the Lord. Not confidence in our circumstances. All right, let me wrap this up. Can you see the contrast with how David, the psalmist, the singer, begins Psalm 4, like he's in the height of distress and he's lamenting? But then the psalm shifts and it moves into confidence with notes of trust and joy and rest. And his body, the singer's body, actually represents this confidence by sleeping, right? Verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. You know, sleeping is so vulnerable, right? When you're asleep, you can't defend yourself. You can't work. You can't play the angles. You can't do more of whatever you think will achieve your goals. You know, the reason why we all want to die in our sleep is because it will be painless and we won't be doubting in our sleep. We will die confidently. Isn't that why we all want to die in our sleep? Church, Psalm 4 is a gift, it's a roadmap out of the loop, out of the anxiety and distress. And this map of lament and confidence, it's not just a cute gimmick or self-help. Years later, our Savior Jesus would find himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the same map of Psalm 4 would be coursing through his veins. And he would use that map praying and using it. You know, the gospel of Mark, like on the eve of his crucifixion, we're told that Jesus is so distressed that he's sweating blood. And he, he even said to his very best friends, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And Jesus is teaching us to lament, and he's honest, and he vocalizes it. And in that same prayer, though, he teaches confidence, saying, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Like the Son of God, confidently trusted and rested in the holy will of God the Father, regardless of his circumstances. He knows what's happening. And the next day, the thing that Jesus feared would happen it happened. Like it happened. He wouldn't only sweat blood that night, but blood would be poured out the next day. It happened. And Jesus died this gruesome death. But as we're told in the scriptures, he died this gruesome death with the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12. And by his death, you and your children and your loved ones 
who belong to the Lord are kept forever. Man, may you sleep well tonight. Amen? Amen.